Hi guys, what follows is a selection of the best of the How To Our podcast series 2020 part 2, also known as How To Our episode 31. A series brought to you by Sunday Times Life Lessons with added How To Our live. Come join us at Chiswick House this May 14th to the 16th for our very first ever live How To Our event. I couldn't be more excited. I could try, but I think I'd fail. Find out all you need to know by visiting lifelessonsfestival.com. That's lifelessonsfestival.com. I really, 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 really would honestly sincerely love to see you there and this series is also brought to you by athletic greens mine my wife's and my well-being gurus go to all round green super health supplement our vitamin and nutritional insurance on the daily lest we forget to eat what's good for us otherwise which happens quite a lot much more than it should to be honest because we're all busier than that's what's good for us check out athletic greens at athleticgreens.com okay onwards Our first super guest of this half of our two-part How to Our Best of, this is part two, by the way, if you missed part one, check it out, is someone that I am aware the vast majority of people like, whereas our second guest, well, not so much. Or at least up until he appeared on my radio show, where we talked uninterrupted for almost an hour, a conversation that automatically doubled up as a fully-baked podcast, whilst simultaneously causing millions, literally millions of people, to re-evaluate and change their opinion of him. So, first off, I invite you to take a relaxing psychological soak in a warm bath of vintage McConaughey, that's Matthew McConaughey, talking about my favourite memoir slash handbook for life, Green Lights of the last year, which entered my top 25 books of all time this year and will, I suspect, remain there forever and a day. Over to you, Matthew McConaughey. So, you know, the devil's in the yeses and we can get in a lot of trouble with, with, with too many yeses. At the same time, you know, I come from a small town, a blue collar family. You work your way up, a little town of 10,000 people. All of a sudden I get famous and I'm getting, you know, paychecks and all these things that I've never had. And I'm a little clumsy with all the yeses. So, but I'm catching green lights running downhill. And I had many times in early on in my career where I was really getting some things that were great. Backstage passes, limousine rides, uh, the, any script I wanted to do. And I tripped myself running downhill so I could face plant because I didn't feel like I had earned it or deserved it. So I had a little bit of a non-deserving complex early. And that is a foolish thing to do <laughs> because what I have learned is when you are rolling downhill or the wind is at our back, to handle that gracefully is a better choice because guess what? Just when you think it's all downhill and you've got it all licked, the uphill's coming. Yeah. You know, some crisis, some red and yellow light will come. You don't need to create it for yourself, which I've been guilty of doing before. Yeah, dad's going to pass and mommy's going to sell stories to hard copy. Yeah, that's coming. <laughs> you don't trust that. And you don't need to create a red light and face plant and get a bloody nose that you tripped yourself just because you think you need to feel on the way. No, enjoy Easy Street because it'll get hard shortly. Okay, now the work that Matthew has done uh, putting this book together has been um, unconscious for three and a half decades and it's been conscious in the last year, which how come it's happened? And a lot of that has been to do with journaling uh, and keeping a diary. And what you have discovered yourself, Matthew, 
from what I can glean, looking back on all your notes and your poems and things like this and all your bumper stickers and all your affirmations, is that it's really important to write things down, not only when you feel bad to get them out there and, and to, to get rid of, to, 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 to sort of externalize them, but also it's really important to write things down when things are going well so you can go back to that playbook and, and, and give yourself a, a leg up. Bingo, bingo, bingo. Look, we're, we're taught all the time to like dissect our failures. What did I do wrong? Oh my God, I got to see why I failed there. But we don't often dissect our successes or when we're happy or when we feel like we found our frequency or when we're catching green lights. I, in my early 20s, I, I, I had a time where I was having great relationships with my friends. My, I was doing good in school. I had money in my pocket. I was rolling. And I remember I looked down, I was like, you hadn't written in your diary much lately. And I was like, uh, you better go back and write this down because you might need it later. And of course, when things are going well, what do we all think? Human nature thinks, well, this is how it'll always be. Uh -uh. We all know it's not going to be that. We get in a rut again. Well, to write things down, what our habits are when we're catching green lights, when we have found our frequency and we're on our frequency is great because I know for me, when I get in a rut, I'm able to go back and go, what were you doing back then when you were rolling? What were your habits? Who were you hanging out with? Where were you going? What were you eating? What were you drinking? How much sleep were you getting? How were you greeting the day? How are you looking at life? And they've helped me recalibrate when I'm off track and off frequency to get back on frequency because I dissected what I was doing when I was feeling more satisfied. Absolutely. And uh, another mistake we all make is, you know, even if you get that playbook going and things are going well and you're aware that you don't trip yourself up going downhill because the uphill's coming, still there are more ruts over the uphill and uh, you often take yourself off. Now, one of the first times you took yourself off, you met a guy called Brother Christian. I like him. I'm allowed to like him a lot, aren't I? He's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. You are allowed to like him a lot. You know, I I just gotten famous in Hollywood. I was all this affluence was coming to me. People were saying, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I'm going, wait a minute, I, my family and I've said that to four people in our lives. Where, where's this coming from? I was trying to, I needed to, to step out of Hollywood and go, let me figure out what the hell matters to me. Um, so I found this uh, um, monastery way out in the desert in New Mexico. And the, and the thing was, the directions were, you can't take the dirt road to get here, but if someone drops you off at this mile marker, if you walk 13 and a half miles, and ring the bell, we'll give you a place to sleep. So I uh, hitchhiked and got a ride to that to that place, got dropped off, walked the 13 and a half miles, rang the bell. Um, a young monk comes out and says, yes, come in, brother, come in, brother. He gave me a place to sleep. I slept the next morning. I said, look, I need to talk to somebody. I need to talk to somebody about, to make some confessions about what I've been doing, what's in my mind, sins of the mind, sins of thought, sins of deed. He goes, oh, yes, brother Christian would be a great man for you to talk to. So I go for this walk with brother Christian. We walked for over four hours through the desert. He's got his hands behind his back, just walking next to me, head down, listening, nodding. And I am confessing all of these guilt-ridden sins that uh, of trying to figure out oh, what the hell's going on. Where's my mind? Where's my heart? Sin of deed, sin of thought. I purge to this man for over four hours. He does not say a word. We end up back settling into this bench next to the chapel as I'm finishing my confession, snot running out of my nose, tears dripping off my chin down to the floor. And this is another thing I did. And I, and I finish. He hasn't said a word in four and a half hours. I wait about 10 seconds. He still doesn't say anything. After about 15 seconds, I look up at him. He looks at me and goes, me too. Oh. <laughs>
And I was like, thank you. You know, sometimes when we're having trouble, we don't need advice. Yeah. We just need to be someone let us know that, hey, man, it's not just you. It's a human. It's a human. It's a human. It's part of the human endeavor. It happens to everybody. Um, so that was he. He's a cool dude. He actually married um, Camilla and I. Did he really? Wow. Yeah. What a wedding that was. John, John Mellencamp playing the, playing the wedding singer. John Mellencamp played the Psalms. Um, Brother Christian uh, oversaw the ceremony. It was a Catholic wedding. Our local pastor, Dave Haney, set everything up with the crowd and let them know exactly why they're here. And my wife's um, godmother from Candible showed up. So she blessed us in Portuguese and told us things like, you know, do not chase butterflies. If you plant your garden, the butterflies come to you. We had a Christian, we had a Catholic, and we had Melanchat. My older brother came to me after the wedding and goes, hey, little brother, if there is a heaven, I think you got it covered. Yeah, I think you're already we there. Had- <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you were there, Matthew. Sounds like you're there now. It felt like it. So you are part monk, you're part son, you're part dad, uh, you're part movie star, you're part uh, philosopher, but you are very much a nomad. I didn't realize you spent three years in your airstream with your dog. Yeah, traveled the country, and um, it was me and my dog, and that 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 was a front row to characters, which I saw as like the perfect class for, for my vocation of being an actor. The people I met, uh, you know, I write early in the book. It, once you become famous, it becomes hard to meet strangers. Um, it becomes hard to be anonymous. And I've had to leave the United States and North America to go to places where people didn't know my name or spoke the language. But being on the road and that movement, to be able to move in wherever I wanted, and if I was ready to move on after that, I could pack up at any time and get those wheels rolling and head off down the highway and find another spot. Or you know, pick out my favorite concert in four nights and then let's drive to Detroit and do that. Pick out my favorite football game and drive across the country and hit that. And along the way, do business. You want to meet, Chris? I'll pick you up at this airport. We'll talk in the car for eight hours driving. I'll drop you off at the next airport. You get a flight out, lickety split. It was the best office I've ever had. And you made movies on the way. Yes, I would go stop. Like we made Amistad, I'd stop in Rhode Island. Uh, made quite a few movies along the way. Um, Vancouver. Just drive up there and on the road. Well, here's the next destination. We'll go park it. And when I would go to those locations, I would always stay in a really cool trailer park. There's that story of the one I stayed in on the Indian Reservation in Vancouver, which was it was a great spot. Um, stay there for, for three months instead of staying in a hotel. Uh, right, in my top five green lights, and this book is full of green lights, it is called Green Lights with Matthew McConaughey, is the Bongo Naked T-shirt green light. Please, sir. Oh, hell yeah. That's a good thing to advertise. That puts smiles on faces. How did it happen? <laughs> well, there's an extremely detailed story of it in the book, which obviously you've read, which is, I can't do it word for word because, boy, I did write, really. It's a really great story. Um, that was a night after 36 hours of uh, a revelry um, after my, my alumni football team had beaten the number four team in the nation. And our home turf, and it was reason to celebrate. So that game was on a Saturday. Um, cut to Sunday night, 2.36 a.m., actually Monday morning. I'm still enjoying the victory. So we've gone through Saturday night, through Sunday, through Sunday night into Monday morning. Um, I decided it's time to turn it on down. I'm tired. Um, I've I, I, I partied enough and celebrated this victory enough. Um, so I, uh, pull out my congas. They're there in the middle of the room. I put on some Henri de Conge 
And I start banging on my congas and uh, being ready for bed. I was in my birthday suit. Well, that's when I looked up and somebody, two men in a blue, blue suits were coming barging through my door. And next thing I know, I'm slammed down and nightsticks are out and I'm kicking and screaming and going on and on and on. Um, they turn on the lights, they find my ID, the big cop who had me down with the knee in my back and a nightstick, uh, says, Oh, look at who we got here. He's very proud to see that it was, uh, myself. He loved seeing that it was my name. And I picked this up. He also looked over and there was some, uh, marijuana in the bowl. He's like, Oh, and look at what we got here. So he felt like he was two for two. Now they get up and they want to take me out, um, to put me in the car. I've now resisted arrest, and this whole thing has turned into much more than just a noise ordinance. And they go, here, let me get some clothes. And I'm like, no, no, no. No, you ain't putting any clothes on me. This is proof of my innocence. That's my logic at that time, which was not bad logic. They asked me again as they try to put a blanket over me and take back. So I said, no, 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 don't you cover me. This is proof that I was minding my own business. <laughs> now... As I'm getting forced out of my house, um, this is about 30 minutes later, about five more cop cars have pulled up outside, and about 40 of my neighbors are out front. Now they stop again to say, here, you want to put on the you know, the blanket here to walk out? We're going to wrap you up. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not telling you again. This is proof of my innocence, and I'm going to tell everybody, and everybody, and I yelled it out for, for blocks around, people heard me. <laughs> Now, there's a little walkway going out of my house that leads to, uh, it's an open gate. So on the left and right of the gate has the brick walls where the gate is. I get a bright idea that as we're walking out, I, and I'm being led by this cop behind me, who's got me in cuffs, that I am going to straddle the open area of the door the gate, and I'm going to run up, right, left foot, up the walls, go head, feet high, come back down on the other side of the cop who's got me in the handcuffs. And while I'm in midair, I'm gonna slip into a sort of a, a plie and slide my butt down between the handcuffs, let my feet come out the bottom and plant the landing like an all-star uh, uh, acrobat and have my now cuffed hands in front of me and look at the cop and go, take that. And I'm thinking he'll be so impressed with my my uh, Houdini-like feet that he'll now say, well, of course, I'm going to uncuff you and let you go. <laughs> Silly me. What a great feat. <laughs> well, that little maneuver, um, as you might expect, didn't work. Um, I got about six feet up the wall and then got slammed to the ground by this cop. <laughs> anyway, cut to, we're walking out front. Neighbors and five cop cars are out there. I'm in my birthday suit. Will not wear anything. Get put in the back of the car. And now we drive to the precinct. And we get out of the precinct. They offer um close again absolutely not proof of my innocence do not ask me that again i'm telling you this lets everybody know as mine and my own damn business okay as they walk <laughs> me up the steps outside downtown austin i get to the front of the police station and out walks this big six foot six inmate and he's holding a pair of like cotton gel pants <laughs> and he walks up to me and puts his hand out with the pants and i look at him and i go proof of my innocence, man. And he looks at me and he goes, man, we're all innocent. You do, you do want to put these on. <laughs> and it was the fact that it was maybe a fellow inmate that was telling me that I went, okay. <laughs> and he squatted down. I lifted my legs. He shimmied them up my legs and noosed them around my waist. And I went in there and went to jail 
and was in the jail cell for about nine and a half hours and uh, stayed up, et cetera, et cetera. Well, 10 hours later, buzz turning to hangover. Oh my gosh, this doesn't, you know, what am I doing in jail? Um, a lawyer who, the same lawyer um, who, had, who had gotten Willie Nelson off earlier and uh, years before comes in and goes, look, this case has got to be thrown out. And he comes in with the judge. He's like, look, how did it turn from a noise complaint to a resisting arrest? We've gone from a misdemeanor to this. It doesn't make any sense. The judge agreed. This makes no sense. That she interviewed the cops. The cop story didn't back, didn't add up. She goes, this is a $50 fine and you're out of here, much more or less. And so paid the 50 bucks and was out of there. Now I got the choice to go either to the right and there's a private car waiting for me in the garage, or I can go to the left where I'm told there's a whole lot of press. And I'm like, oh, geez, here we go. What to do, what to do, what to do. And I thought about it. And I said, you know what, everything, what I did, I don't feel guilty for. I've done it before, I will do it again. But I don't like the fact that I was in jail. Whatever it happens, and I write about this in the book, my parents cared about you getting caught. It wasn't as much about the deed, it was that you got caught. And I had gotten caught. Whatever you want to say, no excuses. I ended up in jail, and I was like, this is not a place I'm supposed to be. So that's where I was feeling a little bit guilty. But I decided to take the left and go to the go to the press. And I went out there and, you know, said a few things. We all They ended up cracking up. I ended up cracking up. Went home, and the next day, there were bongo-necked T-shirts all over Austin, <laughs> all over Texas. <laughs> and I was like, yep, there you go. Um, there it is. There it is, Matthew. There it is. Okay, here we go. Um, the second cab off the rank for the first two bits of part two of our Best of How to Wow podcast, Top of the Pods, is, and I challenge you not to warm to this guy, Piers Marmite Morgan, as he opens up to why he is a nailed-on liberal. Uh-huh. Honestly, how he became the target of cancel culture in America and his friendship with soon-to-be ex-Pres Trump and future Pres Sleepy Joe. All extensions of narratives in his Sunday Times bestseller, Wake Up, Why the World Has Gone Nuts. Here is the other PM. That's not the Prime Minister. At least not yet. Anyway, Piers Morgan. PM for PM. It's got a ring to, hasn't it? What has concerned me about the way uh, liberalism has gone, and I identify as a liberal. You know, I'm, I've edited the Daily Mirror for 10 years. Dun, dun, dun. My, my instinctive gut feel to stuff is, is liberal. And what's really struck me is, of course, the, on the right, the liberals scream about the right-wingers and say they're all intransigent, self-righteous, they think they know best and so on. So I wasn't going to target them because that's a familiar battleground and that's been raging now on social media for years. What's more interesting to me is what's happened to liberals and especially this woke element of the liberal crowd. And it's become, in my view, really weird and insidious and antithetical to liberalism. And I explain in the book in that intro the history of liberalism and what it really should be about. It should be about fairness and tolerance, a desire to have democratic debate, yeah. a desire to be able to sit opposite somebody, hear a view you completely disagree with, maybe even find offensive, but actually tolerate somebody's right to have a different opinion and maybe engage in a debate where you both learn something and at the end of it reach points of consensus agree to disagree about other stuff and go down the pub and have a pint that's gone 
in oh, this gone, country. It's gone completely. Um, I mean, lots of people say you add fuel to that fire. I say it myself about myself in the book. I've, there's no question when you've got, you know, I've got 7.6 million Twitter followers, not that I'm counting, obviously. It's not about size, <laughs> although it is actually about size. Um, but I, when you've got that sort of platform, and to put it in perspective, when I left the Mirror in 2004, they had about 2.5 million readers. So it's a gigantic platform. And sometimes you can forget that and you can pile in on these culture war stuff. And before you know it, you're fueling the fire. And I've definitely done that. Um, it's really a clarion call to all liberals, including myself, to say, can't we just now just reset the pandemic? Yeah. Surely will reset many, many things for many people uh -huh. in different ways. And I think liberals, and especially woke liberals, have got to ask themselves whether cancel culture, which is their preferred mechanism for shouting people down, is to cancel them, ruin their lives, end their jobs, and so on. Is that liberal? Is but, that actually what liberalism is? So you also talk about the fact that when you contemplated writing this book, you thought this could get me cancelled. Um, do, you, do you consider yourself to have been cancelled in America? And do you really fear ever being cancelled anyhow? And. Uh, I think probably, honestly, no. America was an interesting case. I did uh, three and a half years at CNN. I did over 1,300 shows there. Fantastic experience. Interviewed everyone I could possibly wish to interview. But in the last year, I got very passionate and animated about gun control. And there's no doubt, you know, more than half of CNN's viewers supported having guns and the right to bear arms. And so it became this, you know, I remember uh, Jay Leno, who you will know well, Chris, was a fantastic late night host for many, many years on The Tonight Show there. And he took me aside when I went on the show about this. And he said, you know, Piers, the trouble with your position about guns is this. It's a bit like you going to Germany and telling them they can't speed on the autobahn. You know, the smart crowd will say he's got a point. Most Germans will go, we don't want to hear that from you. And we definitely don't want to hear it from that accent. And he said, Americans... <laughs> believe in the right to bear arms, yeah. the vast majority. They want, to, they want to have a gun. They don't want to hear a Brit, given that they drove the Brits out of the whole country with guns, mm. tell them they have to give up their guns. So I think it became a bit of a culture clash with me at CNN. Uh, <laughs> but I do remember when I left CNN and I came back here, and I could count on one hand the number of people in America of any position of authority who bothered to contact me. Trump did regularly. He must have rung me three or four times in a couple of months just to say, how's it going? What are you up to? Anything I can do to help you? And I remember I, I did a deal to write columns for the Daily Mail and it appeared in the New York Post. And he, I, it, what he does when he, when, he writes, when he emails you, he gets one of his assistants to print out the piece and he writes with his big Sharpie little notes on the, on the stuff. And he just wrote, I'm so proud of you, my champ, Donald, you know. It's just an unusual thing to do, and he does it all the time. I've probably got 50 notes like that from him. So the reason I, I'm happy to stay friendly with Trump is he's actually been good to me over the years. And even when I was hammering him over the pandemic, we could still have a moment to have a laugh about Prince Harry and good luck to him. You see, what I find interesting about him, and there's, what, there's somebody in our game that was like this and remains like this, and I won't say who it is, but it's somebody who does a similar job to what you and I do. Mm. Um, I've never seen them laugh, ever. Right. And you, you, Trump is funny sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes he's really not funny at all. And he couldn't be more offensive. But I've never seen him laugh since he's been president. And I've watched, I've watched everything he ever does. And he's never laughed once. That's an extraordinary thing for a human being not to do. If you actually do. watch Trump's rallies, on one level, they're quite scary. I get it if you hate him and you think it. But actually, he's just a showman. And they can be very funny, some of the stuff he but comes But he out doesn't with. laugh, though. Oh, he can laugh, Trump. Yeah, right. Okay. Oh, he can laugh. Okay. Yeah. Trump, right. Trump could laugh. I mean, he. I used to. We have a, a lot of laughs. I mean, the Apprentice Boardroom. I was there for three hours a night for six weeks. Yeah. People can't hide what they're like in that environment. He showed a lot more empathy 
in that boardroom than I've ever seen him show as president. I don't know why he feels empathy's weakness. He seems to think he has to be the strong man. I think a little bit of empathy, certainly after what happened with George Floyd, would have gone an awful long way yeah. to healing. It was a no-brainer, really, that wasn't it? You would have thought so. Yeah. But but Trump sees all that as weakness. He sees, whereas conversely, Joe Biden is a man literally with empathy through every pore of his body because he's been through such utter tragedy. You know, this is a man who, when he was 30 and was about to become a senator, his wife and uh, baby daughter were killed in a car crash. His two sons survived. And then five years ago, his beloved son, Bo, who I knew really well and used to come on my CNN show a lot as a, as a commentator. And he'd been everything. He'd been a war hero in Iraq. He'd been an attorney general, an incredibly smart lawyer, in a lovely family. He was heading on a trajectory, I felt, to potentially become a president one day. And I wrote a column when he died. of a, He had a brain cancer. And I wrote a column saying, if Bo Biden is the best president, America will now sadly never know it had. And uh, between writing it and the funeral, which was uh, about two or three days later, I got a uh, phone call out of the blue from Joe Biden, who I'd never met, never spoken to. I'd met his wife and I'd interviewed Bo many, many times. And he said, I'm just ringing you because I thought if I wrote to you, you wouldn't understand uh, what this meant to me and my family. But we've all read your column twice. And I just want to say to you, what, on a personal level, thank you for what you said about Bo, because it really it, it moved all of us enormously. And we got talking and I said to him, I've just been so struck by your strength this week because I know what happened to you before. And as a father of four kids, I can't think of anything worse. And it's happened to you twice now. And you lost a wife. I said, how, how, how do you deal with this? And he paused and he said, you know something? He said, there's a, there's a picture on my desk right now as I'm talking to you. He was vice president at the time to Obama. And he said, the, it's Hagar the Horrible. And it's a cartoon strip my father sent me. And it's in two parts. And the first part, Hagar is looking up at the, it's a tumultuous, stormy seas. And he's in his boat and he's got his trident and he's like, he thinks he's going to, everything's going wrong. And he shouts up at the gods, why me? And the second half of the cartoon has the gods shouting back, why not you? And he said, when I got it, I was actually quite annoyed with my father. I thought he'd just been insensitive. But over time, I've really understood what he was saying, which is you cannot rationalise this kind of thing. And if you can't rationalise it, you, you mustn't expend too much energy trying because it will be a waste of that energy. And we had a long chat. We moved into talking about gun control and all this kind of thing. And at the end, actually, he said to me, I, I just want to let you know I, I owe you one. And, don't, and please don't hesitate to call me in, which I will be reminding him if he wins the presidency. <laughs> I'll be calling him immediately. Um, but I was really struck by the fact that he bothered to call, yeah. the fact that he showed such empathy and the fact that clearly his own life experience has and you see it when he meets people when he met the people who'd lost uh, their kids at Sandy Hook and I remember Joe Biden meeting them it was it, he just had a natural empathy yeah. with people who'd suffered tragedy and I think America has gone through its toughest year for many 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 decades and in Biden they might have somebody who can actually calm everything down be a unifying force, as best anyone can be in polarised America, but also give the country empathy when they most need it. 
This is the How to Wow Best of Pick of the Pods 2020 with our first two golden nuggets of guest wonder, McConaughey and Morgan there to get us underway. And on the way, only two knights of the realm, that is Sir Roger Daltrey and Sir Rod Stewart, both of whom invited How to Wow into the privacy of their own homes and could not have been more welcoming. But first, breathe. No, really, breathe. No, really, we are going to learn to breathe with the author of the most important book written this year. The book is called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. If you haven't read it, I hope James popping up here will inspire you to pop over to the How to Wow website at howtowow.org and audio copy immediately. But first, a lady who quietly, bizarrely has become a bit of a mate. Dame Judy Dench, no less. I know, I know, it's unbelievable. She must be crackers. So Judy first, starring in episode 17 of How to Wow, here discussing her role as M, that's James Bond's boss, if you didn't know, uh, the prospect of Damesnet, a website exclusively for actual dames. My dear, you welcome all dames of the world, if you're listening. And then secondly, James from episode 20 on the history of breathing, the benefits of nose breathing and why having your teeth straightened is sometimes really, 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 really not a good idea. Like the worst idea ever but first of all dame jay michael said to me you've got to do it jude because he said i can't resist saying i live with a bond woman and um and so i did do it and i am very <laughs> pleased that i did because i had the most wonderful time right okay. just <laughs> wonderful Except that I was kept in that in that studio, my office, all the time, and I complained to Barbara Broccoli and uh, and 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 Michael, and um, and said, "I'm I'm only everybody goes to glamorous places, and all I am, I'm in that office all the time." So then we did a film, then we did one of them where we were at Stowe School, mm-hmm. and they gave me a big trailer with Innsbrucks written along the side. And they said, you can never complain again because you've been in Innsbruck. <laughs> but I did get to go to Nassau. Mm. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I was drunk with power. What was that like? Oh, drunk with power I was, yes. Well, they say absolute, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes, I'm sure it does. Yeah, well, now you know because you've done it. You know, apart, <laughs> apart from Bond himself, you know, your M was the most foreboding character in any Bond films. I mean, you know, just tell tell us about that. Tell us about, I know it's a potentially a boring question, but, you know, how did you approach your female M? I just, I just uh, played it like a person, like the person in the script, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and like the intention of, um, you know, she gets to tell him off a lot and be quite bossy. And, um, and, uh, I had to kind of assert myself a bit because there hadn't been a woman M before, you know. I don't know. I went about it like I went about playing, uh, I don't know, anything, any part. But it's interesting you say that you don't know, but then you describe the process for that particular character. And so you do know, but you don't know you know. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it is. And you just rely on the director and you rely on the people you're acting with and you rely on the script. And then you get on with it and hope for the best. <laughs> I love it. It's so pragmatic. But it's so true because you can dress anything up, can't you? Because the thing is about football or, or sport, there's a score, isn't there? You know, so you know if you've won because you've got more goals than the other team. You know, and in banking, you that know is exactly won, you, right. Yeah, this is what was it because this this is sort of um, ethereal win here, but you don't know how to get it. You, 
you've hit it right on the head, Chris. Uh, it's not. It's nothing you can get hold of, and nothing you know about, and nothing you know about till later. Yes, yes. Because nobody says, "Oh, wonderful, wonderful," as like everyone thinks people say, "Oh, wonderful, wonderful." They don't say that. They wait. You wait, and in a film, it, it's uh, up to the audience to see it and decide what they think. Just before we wrap up, what, what, where was the doubt in your mind about Bond? Why did you need the little nudge in the right direction from Michael? Uh, because I was, uh, I thought this is a big jump to do. Can I do this? Yep. And I mean, you know, filming came quite late to me because nobody wanted to put me in films, and I only ever wanted to be in the theatre. Um, so it was a, you know, it was. Um, <clears throat> I was, I didn't know what uh, to, I would make of it. I didn't know what I could make of it, and I was frightened because it's such a huge, as you said, it's such a huge kind of moving machine bond and you don't want to let the side down. And also you, you were the holder of the biggest bond secret of all time, you know, in as much as you knew you were going to get killed off or your end was going to get killed off, which was the best twist. I, I oh. didn't know that for a very long time. When did they tell you? Oh, I went and met Barbara Broccoli and um, Daniel Craig at the Wolseley. And they told me. And then somebody reported that I cried. I didn't cry at all. <laughs> Some zero, she cried. Cried? I didn't cry. So there. So then I did, yes, at the beginning of Skyfall, I was told. Maybe it would, would have been better if they had never told me and it just happened, <laughs> you know. That would have been quite a surprising. But what a scene! I mean, scene. what to cry to cry in a Bond movie? You know, that's that doesn't happen very often. I don't think it may have ever happened at all. But I think there wasn't a dryer in the house when 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 M died. Well, your M was obviously dying. Well, <laughs> when they told I don't you, know. when Barbara and Daniel told you, you know, when, when you're going to tell Dame Judi Dench that her M is going to get nobbled in the next Bond movie. Do you do you do you, do you bring up that in the, in the, during the starters, or do you, do you wait till you hit the whiskey? No, I think it was quite towards the end. I think it was. I seem to remember. I think we got towards the end, but then I did get to do yeah. a, a day on Spectre. Yeah, of course, you did. I had a, I had a little, you know, little uh, bit on on the screen uh, on Spectre. So you see, I got to do another one. Yeah. What's interesting about that conversation in the Wolsey is that they, they, you know, you must have been talking about whatever you're talking about, and they're both thinking, you know, nudging each other under the table, saying, "Let's just." When are we going to tell? When are we going to tell? I can't, I can't, I can't digest me, me caviar or whatever it is. Having. <laughs> well, I think I'd had a good go though. Yeah, I know you, Chris. Don't you? I mean, it wasn't like we'd done one. If I'd done one or two, and they came and said, "No, you're going to be killed," I I might have been a bit missed. No, but you... I'd had such a good go. Yeah, I'd had own... such a lovely time. And did you, you have you watched any Bond films back? Have you watched any of those back? I have. Yes, I have. And you like them? I have watched Bond. Yes, I do. I love them. I think love them. Um, and have you heard about the present scenario with the with No Time to Die? Because because it, it's it's have to, it's going to be April twenty twenty one. I think no. now. Is it? Oh my God. Well, everything oh, everything is delayed. Golly, that's not good, is it? Just before you go, I know that you've been working on something very recently with um, Sir Kenneth Branagh. Can you tell us about that? I have. Oh, gosh, I have. We had a wonderful time. Um, Ken has written a screenplay about... Um, it's called Belfast, and it's about his, his childhood... Sure growing up in Belfast in the 70s. And he said to me, 
would you play my granny in it? And I kept thinking, oh, yes, granny. <clears throat> and I said to somebody, going to play Ken Branagh's granny. They said, you're not old enough to play Ken Branagh's granny. And I kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, well, I shall do it with makeup. Then, of course, I found it's his granny in the 70s. So I have a, hair, I have a wig as kind of black as a raven's wing. <laughs> Uh... Oh, we had such a good time. And it was brilliantly organised with the COVID. Brilliantly. Everybody tested every day. And, of course, all of us separately. And everybody in masks and things. It was so well organised. And we felt very privileged and very, very lucky to be working. Very lucky. I know you know this, but he's a special person, isn't he, Kenneth Branagh? Absolutely. It was the 10th time we've worked together. I think he's a fantastic person. And he, uh, everything is, everything is enormous fun. And I reckon that if you're directing a film and you've written it and everything, and you then come and the day starts with a quiz of some kind, I think you can't go wrong much. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. That's fun. Of the other dames, um, do you, do you all meet up? Do you have dame meetings? No day meetings, no. We have day phone calls, though, <laughs> from time to time, uh, just off, off and on. <clears throat> uh, and I, I might get to see Joan Plowright at some point if we kind of sit in a garden, I suppose. I never know what the rules are, Chris. What about... There's mum's net. What about dame's net? What about what? You know they have mum's net where all the mums get together and sort the world out. What about dame's net? Because you, you're you wise old owls. You can what sort... Is, what is... What's Mum's Net? Yes, what's that? Mum's Net is like if Mum's Net is the most, one of the most powerful um, online communities in the world. It's mums, mums. Nobody messes with the mums. Yes, yes. I've got the mums bit. <coughs> right. So the, it's the net. Oh yes, I see. On the net. On the yes. net. So what about? D- well, we could. Dame's Net. Come on, come on, Dame Judy. I don't think any of us can see or hear. <laughs> I think we'd be just hopeless at that. Hopeless. Does that come with the damehood? Is it called a damehood or a dameship? What what is it? A dame it's a knighthood, isn't it? What is it? Oh, I don't know. I've no idea. It's called dam in America, you know. They say they call you dam. Do they? The grand dam. Oh my goodness me. No, not grand dam at all. Dam Judy Dench. Oh right, I see. Dam Maddie Smith. Dam that bloody Judy Dench. Um, <laughs> just reading about your career, Dame Judy, it's, 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 I mean, it, it reads nonstop. It's so full. It's so busy to talk to you, to, to interview you or to have a conversation with you. You could, you could literally talk to you for days, if not weeks. And here you are 85 years young on the eve of your 86th birthday. You know, Thank you so much for, for reminding yeah, me. Yeah. Sorry. It's uh, September the 9th. Uh, sorry. December the 9th. In case you've forgotten. <laughs> Um, the, day, the day after John Lennon was shot. Do you remember that, by the way? I do, the, I do. Where were I you do. when that happened? I can't remember where I was. Yeah. I can't remember. I was just remembered being unbelievably shocked. Yes. Yeah, it must be strange to have had And it is, incidentally, it's the day before Ken Branagh's 60th birthday. Ah, so he's getting on as well, and you'd like us to point that out. <laughs> I think you ought to sing to him. <laughs> I love Ken Branagh. He used to live around the corner from me. He's always been so nice to me. And he's so... He's so he's so he's, famous, but he doesn't appear like he doesn't carry himself like that at all, does he? Not a bit. Yeah. Not a bit. He's got a, he's got a wonderful sense of humour. He's great. He's great. No, just I was going to say, just looking back, you've done it all. Reading it was exhausting, right? Look, looking back on it, I know you're so grateful because uh, you know how fortunate you've been, and you're still fortunate, and you still get offered loads and loads of jobs. 
you know, just just looking back for anybody who's who's on the beginning of that journey, you know, you spoke to it earlier on, some kids, you know, leaving drama drama college or, or whatever oh. right now. Bit of advice from, from a lady who knows. Off you go. It's just don't don't give up. Don't give up. And don't give up going and seeing as much as you can. This is difficult, impossible to say this year especially. But um, just it's the enthusiasm and the kind of energy that goes into the job. And it's so essential. And what this year has done um, is kind of, you know, lessened that for us all. And, um, you know, we're all told to retrain and get other jobs. I don't think that that is what we should do at all. I think it's an essential part of... um, I think the whole business of entertaining people and keep people entertained. And for instance, the whole the whole time that we've been locked down, people have turned to watching plays, watching films, watching anything, listening to music. Um, and that's in a way, I think what's kept a lot of people going and it's an essential thing. And so we have to kind of remember that it is essential and that it is something that reproduces itself, that kind of feeling of enthusiasm. It's very, very good for you. You know, it's like um, during lockdown, I've tried to learn quite a lot of stuff. It's just very good for you to, for us to watch and to learn and to keep going and have enthusiasm for it. And don't be damped by anything. And goodness knows, I know how hard it is to say that and uh, and to hear it. Um, but my heart just goes out to all those people who are trained and are trying to be actors and musicians and and wig makers and stage doormen and members of the crew and filmmakers and everything. Um, but the enthusiasm you need is what must somehow keep us all going. So never give up. The show must go on. The show has to go on. It's up to us to make sure that's the case. I think that's right, Chris. Well, our facial structure was still very healthy. We had straight teeth, which meant we had wider airways. It was more easy to breathe through our noses. We know that from the skeletal record. We know that yoga was really booting up at this time. So the Yoga Sutras of Pantanjali were written about 2,000 years ago. So this is when they really started to codify and categorize breathing practices for health. It had been passed around as an oral tradition for so long. And this is when they really started writing these things down. In the Western world, from what I've found, breathing practices were, were nil. I, I haven't really seen anything beyond the Bible, but, you know, that's 2,000 years old. It's, it's talking about, uh, you know, God blew uh, life into the nostrils of man, not, not the mouth of man. But uh, for the most part, it was it was really lost for us. And that was in the Dark Ages. So much else was lost as well. Tell us about the opera singer, the opera singing um, lady uh, <laughs> who, who um, she, she didn't make state claims herself, but it was stories were told about her breathing um, that seemed unbelievable and have since been proven to be true. So this was an extraordinary story of this Belgian French anarchist, free-loving opera singer by the name of Alexandra David Neal. And she went off alone in her 40s to the Himalayas for 14 years on this spiritual quest. 
to learn more about Eastern meditation, breathing techniques, and everything else. And she was traveling at, you know, 18,000 feet up in the Himalayas, like extremely high elevations. And she had found this breathing technique that had been passed down to her by a, by a llama to keep herself warm. And so she would just breathe in this way to keep herself warm. And she said, yeah, everyone up here is doing this. They were wearing really thin sheets in the winter, and they could breathe this way to keep themselves warm. So this book came out in the 20s, and, you know, a lot of medical professionals and doctors thought it was complete BS because there was no one out there to take pictures of her or to document this. And it just carried on uh, for, for, you know, 50 years, 50, 60 years. People just thought that this was uh, a fictional tale that she had made up until Herbert Benson at Harvard Medical School finally went out, found these monks who were able to do this, put sensors all over them, and found out that it was 100% true. We can breathe in ways to keep our bodies warm. We can breathe in ways to dry a wet sheet if it were placed over us in a cold room within a half an hour. And all of this was published in Nature, which is one of the most esteemed scientific journals in the world. And still people have a hard time getting their heads around it, but it's all true. It's all true, and there's video, isn't there? <laughs> there's there's video, there's data sheets, there's, you know, Benson's a serious researcher, and so he documented this meticulously, and it's been since been documented as well. So still, when I've mentioned this to some doctors in my family, they're just like, oh, that's that's crazy, and we move on to talking about politics or whatever. Is there a film of the guy drying the sheets? I've not Because I've not come across this yet. To be honest, I've not looked for it, but is is that out there? He's at, I believe he's in uh, Herbert Benson's uh, video, original video, uh, where he went up to Dharamsala. There's been several specials. I think there was a BBC special. I think there was a PBS special about this as well. And so those, those videos are freely available for people. And I would suggest that people read the scientific article in Nature where Benson talks about these people being able to reduce their metabolic rates by about 62%, which is as low as anyone has ever recorded, and yet they're able to heat their bodies up, which makes zero sense in our understanding of the human body. And no one would believe it if these guys weren't there doing this. So so the film specifically is the, a film of a man who is drenched with a, a sopping, a dripping wet sheet, and he then dries it within half an hour with his body heat. That's right. And and I will look for that film as well. <laughs> So I'm just about to, I think, I think I'm going to sign up for another course of Invisalign, teeth straightening. Um, I, I did, I went through this hell, because it is hell, you know, it's it's it's, it's mouth hell a, a few years ago. And then I st- I didn't put the retainer in at night and they've gone crooked again. And, you know, again, it, it, it improves the shape of your face, a little bit more um, self-confidence and things like that. Um, but you have also talked to people in orthodentistry saying we might be doing the right thing the wrong thing here, thinking we're doing the right thing. Can you speak to that for a bit? So the first orthodontics that we were using, first uh, functional orthodontics we were using, did not remove teeth, did not cram remaining teeth into a too small mouth. They expanded the mouth to allow the teeth more room to naturally grow in straight. And by expanding the mouth, you also expand your airway. 
And they've used these same devices with kids and found these kids who were snoring, had sleep apnea, had other breathing problems, no longer have these problems. And they get straight teeth along the way. So again, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is The New Science of a Lost Art. This art really isn't that old. It was 100 years old. And by the 1940s, it was much more efficient to remove teeth to cram those remaining teeth into the mouth, to use braces, to use headgear, to push those teeth back. And from the researchers that I've talked to, including those at Stanford and Kevin Boyd, Mariana Evans, on and on, they have, and, and uh, certainly Dr. Mike Mew and, and John Mew, they believe that these forms of orthodontics, these braces and headgear, can inhibit your ability to breathe properly because they can make a small mouth smaller. And along the way, exactly what's happening to you, your teeth will continually fall out of line oh, because the, the, the problem isn't your teeth. Oh. Your teeth want to grow in straight. They need a larger playing field to do so. So even in adulthood, you can go through a procedure that is not as extreme as it sounds to expand your mouth slightly to let your teeth naturally grow in straight. And when you do that, there's a good chance your airway is going to start to open up as well. So what is that procedure then? There are various procedures. There's dozens and dozens of these things. Some of them have you use a retainer at night like I used. It's called a homeoblock and it worked well for me. Some of them actually uh, insert this thing. They drill it into the top of your mouth. I know it seems, seems gnarly, and they do this much more quickly over the course of weeks or months. Mariana Evans has been doing this for adults and with younger people who were suffering from uh, extreme allergies, extreme sleep apnea, ex extreme asthma, and she has found that they no longer suffer from these problems. And to me, it makes perfect sense. You're, it's basic physics. You have more airway space. You're breathing easier. And, and so why not, in, in my, this is just my opinion. Again, I'm not a doctor, not a breathing therapist. But it seems to me to make more sense to improve your breathing and to permanently straighten your teeth this way by increasing your mouth size to the way it was supposed to have been before our mouths shrunk throughout evolution in the past 400 years. Some people still aren't on the breathing through the nose bus. Other, other sports are, some aren't. Tell us about the early adopters, the people who've always known about it in sport, uh, people who are recent converts and, and people who are still yet to, to come and worship at this altar. <laughs> well, I think breathing through the nose, especially when you've been breathing through the mouth for, for decades, is really hard. So we as Westerners want instant results and something that may take weeks or months to acclimate to where our performance is actually going to go down at the beginning. A lot of people sully on that idea because we don't want to see our performance go down, but that's exactly what is going to happen when you dramatically switch your breathing. But what they've found, and this is very clear, Dr. John Duyard has been studying this for, for 40 years. Once you make that switch, you will be able to get more oxygen, you'll have more energy, you'll have better performance, your recovery will improve. There are so many benefits. But 
that, you know, labyrinth, that gauntlet you have to run, breathing through the nose and training yourself through the nose is a tough one, which is why some people just give up on it. But again, I want to be clear that the benefits of nasal breathing during sport, during rest, during any time are are known and and are substantiated by a lot of data. And it's not just in through the nose, it's in and out through the nose. That is the best breath. And, and here's why. It's less important. The exhale is less important. But when you're exhaling through the nose as well, you're able to extract more oxygen and you save about 42% more moisture. So when you see these people out jogging and they're... <sighs> And sometimes they're carrying around water bottles. There's these belts now that have, you can carry around six little water bottles. And you see these people with their mouths just gaping open. They're losing so much of their liquid, so much of, of their humidity in their bodies by breathing that way, that if they were just to shut their mouth, they wouldn't need to carry around their, their water bottles for a two-mile run. Can we say, can we go as far to say, James, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, to breathe in and out through your mouth um, as opposed to your nose might be like trying to walk on your hands as opposed to your feet. It's not what we were meant to do. To breathe through your mouth instead of your nose? I, I, I think it's, uh, we are so accustomed to be mouth breathers right now that that switch is hard. But you look at any other animal in the animal kingdom, beyond like some bulldogs and pugs who have been bred in such a way to have these flat faces and they can't breathe at all. But all of these animals are breathing through their noses. Check out a racehorse. See how it's breathing when it's, when it's running in a race. Check out a cheetah when it's running at 50 miles per hour stalking down prey. They're all breathing through their nose. And as a species... We're no different from these animals. This is the route through which we should take breath. And no one's really arguing about this. But the fact that so many of us are just walking around with our mouths craned open thinking this is normal is, is what's really tragic. So what about CO2 or oxygen? Let's, let's go in the populist way. Oxygen versus CO2. CO2 gets a terrible rap, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. You know, CO2 in, in the climate, in the atmosphere, there's too much of it. It's causing climate change. It's causing all kinds of issues. If you don't agree with that, I would suggest you take a deep dive, objective dive into the, into the science. And that's clearly what's going on here. So when people hear about CO2, they consider it this toxic waste gas. But what so many people don't realize, what I certainly didn't realize, is our bodies need a balance of CO2 and oxygen to function properly. And when we over-breathe, when we breathe over our metabolic needs, we tend to offload too much CO2. So we're CO2 deficient, which makes it harder for our red blood cells to deliver oxygen into all of the hungry cells in our muscles and organs and tissues. This gets really complicated. It's completely counterintuitive. But we've known this for about 120 years. And again, the science is very clear on this. Too. See, since first reading your book and listening to you talk, um, I ride a bike to work every day. If I don't ride a bike, I run. Um, so I build in it 
exercising to my commute so it's done when I get to work and that has so many benefits psychologically uh, and I get home and I'm full of beans and I get to work and I'm full of beans and I'm just full of beans James I'm full of beans all day long but it's getting colder uh, now so I've tried to do this moving of attention uh, and this this different breathing so it's a combination is it? it's mental and it's physical and it's you've got to be conscious you've got to be present you've got to be aware of what you're doing and I've tried to make my arms warmer you know on my cycle commute in London and it works it bloody well works <laughs> and this what you're doing is a uh, very simple version of tumo meditation you know those tumo monks that herbert benson checked out in dharamsala what wim hof is doing in all of his minions how they breathe in this certain way and they visualize a fire within their bellies and that fire is emanating throughout their bodies this is how those those monks were able to increase the temperature in their fingers by 17 degrees and keep it there and not get cold in freezing temperatures by using your breath and by using your brain. That's James Nestor there, author of Breath. You have to buy his book. It will improve your life immediately and infinitely. Why wouldn't you want that to be a thing? Anyhow, all I can do is shower you with the love, zeal and information I believe, that is, believe, not think, actually might benefit you and deliver a happier tomorrow for you from a more informed and wiser today. You have been warned. You have been informed. There you go. The choice is now yours. Do with that information and inspiration what you will. This is the best of How to Wow Part 2 2020 and we only have two more Pick of the Pods to go so make the most of them you wrap scallion lot because after this my loyal, passionate and dedicated podcast elves are out of here we've had enough, we're done we want beer and vitamins and secretly a bacon sandwich if I'm being honest but after successfully being plant based since March 1st I don't like to talk about it I'm pretty sure I would instantly regret the bacchioni therefore I'm appealing to my future self to swoop down and deliver me from temptation Lord in the here and now in this moment and yep it seems to have worked I now only want beer and vitamins again phew that was close still all's well that ends well said the well digger I digress and I really shouldn't because to top it all off waiting in the wings with places to go and people to see it's only Sir Rod and Sir Roger that is Stuart and Daltrey both absolute legends as well as thoroughly decent self-made rock and roll icons in our last two re-visitations here Sir Rod Stewart how to our episode 10 talks about his humble beginnings how do you think I'm sexy was hated by the critters sorry critics going solo and being in a band with Jeff Beck I'll get on to what Sir Roger Daltrey and I talked about presently we had a wonderful wonderful close-knit family didn't have much money but um, my brothers, two of my brothers are still alive and, and my sister. Mum and dad are gone and I've lost a sister. But they're both 92, 91 and 85. <laughs> and my brother Don comes up here and works out. It's amazing. Wow. But it was a, a loving family. I mean, it really was. Um, uh, my dad bought me my first guitar because I really wanted a, a station for me railway. And he bought me a guitar. I think he said, so there's a bit of money in this, son. He was in the Lonnie Donegan days. Yeah. But um, the turning point was when I was a beatnik and uh, down on Brighton Beach and I was playing all the early Bob Dylan stuff off the first album. Mm. And people were gathering around and listening. And I thought, hello, 
something going on here. I must be doing something right. And it progressed from there. So that was, so that was Brighton, but there was Leicester Square and there was Paris as well. Was that all part of the same time? No, the, the, when I busked around Spain and Paris, that was before. Right, okay. Yeah. And was there a scene in Brighton at the time? Well, you know, for, for the so-called beatniks, yeah, we used to go down there for the weekend and sleep on the beach and, uh, you know, in sleeping bags and under deck chairs. I've actually got some pictures of it, believe it or not. Was it cool? Did you feel cool? Yes. Tell me more about that. Well, <laughs> this would be hard to believe, <laughs> listeners, but in those days, the smellier you were, the more of a genuine beatnik you were. So we never used to wash because that was always part of the charade, you know. Right. Um, but that, that of course, is where my eldest daughter came from because I had a, a loose winkle one weekend and yeah. uh, my, my, my daughter Sarah was born. She's now, I think, 59. <laughs> well, this is what happens, isn't it? We all yeah. get older. See, when you got, let me tell you, my friend, with a loose winkle, you can get in a lot of trouble. Yeah, by the way, your winkle might be working better than both of us put together. There's a third person here, by the way. There's a third person here, by the way. Um, so uh, I think about you. I like, I've always liked you. Not that it matters, but I think you're, you're such an inspiration. I think you're a fucking t total, absolute pro. Um, you, like I say, you always give it all the beans, you know. Mm. And even watching old grainy footage, it's so raw, it's so fucking good, yeah. you know. And see, seeing you in stadiums since then, TV shows, radio studios, just, just so cool to be around somebody who really has always loved. And I don't know whether you've always been grateful for what you do because we all have our moments. But, but you bear in mind, you seem to bear in mind how lucky you are. And if you take that with you, it's like rocket fuel, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's. I mean, I've come from more or less nothing to, to being an extremely wealthy man. <laughs> wonderful houses, yeah. and I thank the public. Yes. But I've seen both sides of the glass. You know, I've known what it's like to be poor, mm. and it's wonderful that you make it and you become wealthy and you can buy wonderful things like that Lamborghini out there, and you appreciate it more as opposed to being, for instance, born into the royal family. Mm. They've never known poverty. Yeah. They've never known what it's like to just have a couple of meals a day. And so it, that's how much I appreciate it. Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? Because I think people... And even my kids. I talk to my kids about it. You know, I said, you have everything you want. You have your own football pitch out there. You've got everything, your own indoor swimming pool. I never had any of this. So, and oh. they say, oh, tough shit, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a funny conversation to have, though, isn't it? It is. They just can't get it into their heads. No, and you fear for them in one way. Yeah, so, yeah. so how have you tried to counteract that? Because I've talked to a lot of successful people about this, you know, that came from nothing, you know, and it's not it's not our fault we came from nothing. It's not our mum and dad's fault we no, came from nothing. Of course not. You know, we haven't won the lottery. We worked really hard. You know, we've had lots of luck along the way. The stars aligned and all that kind of stuff. And it's also not our kids' fault that they have been no. born into something. And it, it's, a, it's a very tricky tightrope to walk, yeah. isn't and it? And that's what it is. I always say it's a fine line between uh, a spoiling and depriving, yeah, you know, and it, sometimes I go on the side of spoiling, right? Uh, but Penny always pulls me back, you right? Know? And you've got to remember, I've got eight children, and yeah. I have to be a different father, more or less, to all of them because the age group is so wide. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I always think about when I think about you is your hair. Right. Barnet, it's fucking great hair. Still great <laughs> hair. Please, do you have any numbers that you can give me? <laughs> no. What? What's so? The, your hair first became a feature in in your mod days, I would imagine. 
Would it be sister back home? Yeah, it? yeah, I used to back Sugar home, and yeah. water. Sugar and water. If people don't know what we're talking about, what was the, what was the routine? Well, it's because there was no hair lacquer. And if there was, it was hard to find, mm. you know, and it, was, it wasn't cheap. So me and my mates, we all had the same barnets. We would back comb it and it was a bouffant. And we got it from guys in Paris. Guys in Paris were having this look. Right. So we'd um, we'd put uh, sugar and water on it to make it hold up. Yeah. And I remember it like it was yesterday. We all had the same haircuts. And we'd all go from, we're all North Londoners, so we'd go down to the West End and we'd have to get on a tube at Highgate Station. And if you ever know, when you go down the escalator and there's a train coming in, the updraft is enormous. Yeah. And so we'd all, all go down to the platform <laughs> holding our hair, making some... It was just hilarious. So, and that uh, hairstyle has stayed with me to this very day. Well, uh, it used to be enormous. You know, it was right up here. It was. I mean, Dusty it, Springfield. What do they call it? They, well, it's not depth. They call it something else, aren't they? But, um, but has it, did it ever threaten to leave? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. I mean, that's, yeah. that's you know... Yeah, that is. You're a lucky ducky. Yeah, I might go and find out why. I think probably because it gets so man, so much manipulation that, that it's the roots are so. You know, I'm always doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Farting about with it. Okay. How's the tea? All right. Tea's great, by the way. So, were you all? Because you're always doing the hokey cokey with bands in the beginning. You know, were you always? You know. A solo artist, even though you have a band, of course. But were you always a solo artist going through the motions of being in a band? Was it? Were you always going to end up on your own? So far from it. Right. So far from it. I was. I was. I was happy being in the Jeff Beck group because I'm. I'm one, I'm one of the lads. I like being in a band. You know, uh, I was in the Faces for the same reason, and um, it was only because you know Ronnie Lane, Ronnie Wood left, that the band broke up. I think we were breaking up before that. I think Mick had his eye on uh, Ronnie for quite a while. But no, I would have stayed in the band forever. Really? Yeah. And then Faces after that? Yeah, that is the Faces, yeah. Sorry, sorry Faces. Pay attention. Jeff Beck. Chris. No, no, you said Jeff Beck first of all. Yeah, because when well, he was faces. in both bands, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. confusing. And do you think, do you think you had tra album. traction in America uh, because, because of the Jeff Beck band, because you went out there and you... Because you, you punked it up, didn't you? you? You threw it, like you said, you threw it right back at them. But Yeah. And Jeff Beck was an extraordinary guitar player. <sighs> Brilliant. And, you know, did he draw the attention first and that he was the heat and, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, there were three pillars to the temple, but... Absolutely. He was... Um, because he'd been with the Yardbirds, he'd been there before. Mm. So when we went out there... In fact, it got to such a point, um, we came off the stage in Detroit and uh, someone came up to, to me and said... Uh, Jeff, this is uh, this is a really great band, and you've got a fabulous guitar there. So I thought I was Jeff Beck because I was a singer, <laughs> or was it the other way round? I don't remember, but there was confusion. And um, and you 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 obviously I don't know if you fell in love with America, but you liked it because you moved there pretty early on, didn't you? Seventy four, seventy five. Seventy five, yeah. That was because of the Harold Wilson government and the outrageous taxation system. So were you already earning pretty decent money then? Um, yeah, I was. You right. know. Yeah, of course. And because uh, the first proper paycheck was from Long John, wasn't it? That's yeah, I was on thirty pound a week there, where a good wage was twenty pound a week. Remember, it used to be a thousand pound a year. Right. Oh, God, that's such a long time ago. What was the first thing you bought of any substance with your thirty-five pound a week wage? I can't remember. I mean, I was always clothes mad. Right. And I always wanted to have a sports car, pull the birds. Yeah. So I think I saved up to uh, to get myself a Triumph Spitfire. Trying to spitfire Mark 
what would it have been, Mark Three then or something? Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. I mean, they all look the same anyway. No, they don't. No, don't. They, they don't. don't. No, the Mark Two and Three have the fins at the back. And oh, you're such an expert. I'm so, not, no, mate. I'm not. I'm just that was my first, my first ever car was a Mark Three yeah. Spitfire. Where are you driving now? Now I'm driving. Um, it's outside. It's outside your house. A 1989 Bentley Continental. Oh, lovely. Which lovely. I bought from Jules Holland. Really? Yeah. What happened to my Enzo? Did you sell it on or did you get it for someone else? Uh, sold it on. They're worth over a million now. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the way it is, isn't it? My sure. Lamborghini Mura, that I, it's a Lamborghini that I bought in 1971, <laughs> for six and a half thousand pounds, just went for one million point two. All my kids go, why didn't you hold on to it? I didn't know, you know. Was that the yellow one? Yellow one, yeah. Was that the Annabelle's one or Tramp one? Uh, that was the Tramp one, yeah. There's a story about that. It's, yeah, it's yeah. in the book. Down the M4. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. So yesterday, watching this documentary about you, uh, one of many that I watched, and it was all—it was great to do. It's a great—I got lost in—I in, got lost in Rodland, and uh, I didn't realise because I was—I I always continue such a confident person that that you were wobbled by the press in the eighties, and you gave this great interview um, where you said, what, "What's the album where you've got the boater on?" You know, tonight's tonight. Tonight's tonight. Yeah. And you said, "I didn't realise." But I wasn't the person the press were describing for years and years and years. But somehow I then became that person. How did that happen? Oh, it's it's simple, just believing all my own hype. Right. You know, I'd I'd moved uh, in 1975. I met Britt Eklund. Yeah. International film star, Bond girl. Mm. Fell in love. I was Jack the Lad. Who wouldn't be? Mm. You know what I'm saying? I was Jack Ladd and I was believing all the hype. People used to say, well, they're the new Burton and Taylors. And I believed it. And I think uh, I thank the press for knocking me back down again. And when did when did you realise that was the case? And how was it a night out with a pal? There's somebody, you know, standing up against the wall. Was it Boiler? Was it who, who might? No, 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 no one. When you're like me, no one's going to tell you what to do. They're all a little, I wish they would sometimes. No, it was just a self self-realisation moment. I've lost it. What am I becoming? And she was even putting makeup on me, although it was fashionable at the time. <laughs> I said, my, my dad went mad. He said, what do you do? You've still got eye makeup on. It's the morning, you know, when I'd come back here to visit. So I, then I suddenly went, hold on, I'm, an, I'm a North London boy, loves playing football, loves a pint. What are you doing wearing makeup? So that may have been the changing point was it, and was that a moment in the mirror was it out with your mates no, it wasn't in the mirror it was in the sun actually and it was in the express as well right <laughs> very good Got very good, good very good <laughs> yeah no, but what, no, what, it wasn't a look in the mirror mate was, was there an epiphany one morning i thought oh well you've made a complete charlie yourself right because everybody even the music papers that were had been up until then mm. so good to me but they hated it when i moved to america and fell in love with a hollywood uh a, a star right but, but it was a right laugh as well at the same time. Of course it was, looking back on it now, you yeah. know, the criticism I got for recording, do you think I'm sexy? And it's still on the radio. It's still on every headline yeah. that you read about me. You know, my my dear wife was in the paper today because she's brave enough to take pictures of her weight loss. She's she's lost three stone. And she took pictures and, and posted it and they picked it up. And the headline was, do you think I'm... Slimmer or something like that. Some do you think I am? So th that song has been like a lavatory seat around my head ever since. Yeah, but we people love it. They love it. We played on the radio this morning. So yeah. Sounds, sounds oh, great. Did? Yeah, so we did an hour and a half today. It represented a, a, an era. 
Didn't yeah, I mean, was it audacious to write that song, do you think? Because you, you talked about it in the time, you mitigated it at the time by saying, well, it's third person. It's like, this is why you used to like me, because you, you said to the music press, you know, I, I used to write about, you know, about people in the third person. I used to take a, a feeling, an emotion, and I used to write around that, and you fucking love that. You said those songs were edgy. Well, this is the same thing. It's just about a different subject. Yeah, and it was, it was the dreaded disco beat. You know, that didn't help with that yeah. song either. But as I just said, people love it. People still love it. It represents an era. Uh, and I don't mind singing it. You know, there's other <laughs> songs I'd rather sing, but I'm there to make the people happy. And that's what I do. The legend that is Rod the Mod, there you go, star of How to Wow, our beautiful little podcast that has since been voted fave of 2020 by Apple than very selves. I know, we couldn't believe it either. Episode 10 for Rod, if you want to hear more. And finally, ladies and germs, a bloke whose band invented rock. Because before The Who, and this is all true, the actual Who, yes, that's right, the actual Who, there was rock and roll, whereas they ditched the roll and doubled down on the rock. Quite a good idea, as it turned out. You may have heard. So Roger Daltrey has done loads of stuff for us at Carfest, as well as raising tens of millions of pounds and dollars with his Teenage Cancer Trust events both here in the UK and over in the US. In our little sippy of Clippy here, Roger talks Townsend, Townsend's mum, Betty, playing the Hollywood Bowl and watching Hendrix live in his teens, shoulder to shoulder, cheek to jowl in a bar with Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton in the West End. What a laugh. Where did it all go wrong, Rog? Once we once we discovered uh, the blues, um, Motown, the blues, you know, those early artists, Little Richard and that, the, the black community, the, their roots in gospel, they were doing it in a way that was so much better than the Bobbies. You know, that, that t dreadful period of the Bobbies. <laughs> Bobby V. <laughs> there were so many Bobbies. <laughs> but not the Everleys. <laughs> no, the Everleys were cool. Oh, here now, we go. The Ever now, the Everleys were always cool. <laughs> pointing at but me. That, uh, but that's, that blood harmonies, you can't whack them, can you? No, no, no. And not. they really came, they, you know, they, they, they were down-home Kentucky boys, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, no, the Everleys and Buddy Holly, of course, I would count as doing it in a different way. It came from a different part of his spirit and his, his body. Yeah, Woody Guthrie as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that got uh, totally different music. Yeah, but it came from the gut. Yeah, um, and of course, once we saw the Chicago blues players, you know, like Little Walter, you know, Jimmy Reed, John Lee Hooker, Sonny Boy, Sonny Boy Williamson. Oh God, what character he was! Uh, Howling Wolf. Wow, it blow you blow you away when you saw it. it. He was it was just so rooted in. I, I suppose what I, I've always often wondered why this British white working class kids, and we're all about 16, 17, 18 years old, worship these guys. And I suddenly realised we were probably nearer to what these guys had suffered in their communities because white working class, you know, it was the bottom rung of a then, which was the class system, and it was totally different than it is today. Although today the white working class is still bottom rung uh, under the heel of sort of everything else on top. Um, and I oft, often wonder if, if there wasn't a psycho, kind of psychological connection going on there um, because we just worship them. 
And those guys used to come over here and in, in America, of course, they could only couldn't play anywhere out of the, out their own clubs and little places. They came over here and were treated like royalty. Yeah, <laughs> they couldn't believe their luck. It was, and we worshipped them. They were they were they were so one. And to see them, to have Sonny Boy Williamson stand in front of you at the marquee with his bowler hat and his little briefcases, his little, old, little tiny briefcase. Of, of which he used to carry his harmonicas and, and a bottle of whiskey. Johnny Walker, square bottle of whiskey. And he can, can I come up and do a number with you? And you're looking down there, Sonny Boy Williamson, can you come up and do a number yeah, with right us? <laughs> Are you kidding? Uh, uh, wonderful. And he, 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 you know, I just learned so much from them. And there were other guys, you know, Black English people from the Caribbean. There was Jimmy James and the Vagabonds. They were all fantastic showmen. They had just, oh, they just glowed. They just. But they were in the group, weren't they? They yeah. were. They they were yeah. in it. They lived it. They lived they it. They meant and it. They were something part of about it. where. They, and I think it all came from their roots in the church. You know, the, 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 from their gospel roots. Yeah, yeah. All. all it, well, I started in the church. I was in the church choir in Shepherd's Bush, just down the road there. And uh, so singing very different music. Yeah. It was High Church of England, but it <laughs> wasn't quite hallelujah. <laughs> but uh, I'd like to go back and put a few hallelujahs in now. But you do talk about that, and you've talked about it before, about, about you know, mental health and about singing and about meeting people, you know, from when you were, you know, 10, 11 in church right to, to today. And, you know, you've always championed it because it makes you feel, you know, it's drug-free, it's high in your own supply, it's dopamine, it's serotonin. And you, you have talked about feeling like that in the choir at church. Yeah, there's just something about singing that brings people together. And, and it's scientific fact that if... if when people start singing together, their heartbeats all settle down to the same rhythm. I find that extraordinary. So there's something much more going on with, with singing and, uh, and joining in and than we understand. And the really interesting thing I find is that, as you know, not, not everybody's got perfect pitch, but it doesn't matter. When you hear African tribes singing, they're... they're it's kind of notes within notes within notes. There are no wrong notes, just that some are more right than others. Yeah. <laughs> but when it's all together, it creates a sound that is, I don't know, it touches so deep inside us. It's weird. Well, if you get enough people together, you, you'll be in harmony with someone. I mean, that's football. You don't get out of tune football crowds, do you? <laughs> well, it depends what football club you're watching. <laughs> we don't want to start a war, do no, we? No, we don't. Come on, you gunners. Um, but because um, you talk about when you start singing together, your heart beats, your hearts all start to beat at the same rate. And also, there's a vibration thing. Because the because there's there's vibrations in the airwaves and that so you everything starts to vibrate at the same frequency and it's not only when you're singing together and that's why concerts are so collegiate and so sort of euphoric because it's the it's the it's the vibration the amplification of the of the sound waves from the the wall of sound from the the stacks of speakers into the crowd but it's this it's like this mass hypnosis and that's why gigs work and also you know at a sporting a sporting event you know there's two teams they're in opposition nobody's really in opposition at a gig you're all together you're all you literally right. as one yeah it's one of the few things that everyone's pulling the same way but i must say uh, to just to sit in 
in the stands of a football stadium, listening to it doesn't matter what what team you're playing, the opposing fans, your fans, the sound of a group of people just singing their heads off. And most of them come out of their completely coarse, don't they? They, they yeah. lose their voices, they sing so loud. It's the most wonderful sound you you can hear. It really is. Yeah. And it's one of the few places you can really hear it where it's actually not amplified and it is just above all the ruckus and the whatever else is going on. It's, it's just fabulous noise. Well, talk about the Hollywood Bowl. Let's talk about that and the Everly Brothers because you get the Hollywood Bowl. You played there how many yeah, times? Well, loads of times. I loads? Of, well, how good is that? How good is it to say that? How many, <laughs> we first, oh, loads, oh, well, loads we of first times. played there in 1967. No, I know. And it was with the Everly Brothers. I know, and you, but you didn't get to meet them. No, and I was so dying to meet them, dying to meet them. But then, sadly, we had a bit, little bit of an event. <laughs> <laughs> one, one was in those days that the, the the orchestra pit in front of the Hollywood Bowl, when there was an audience in there for a rock show, they used to flood it, only about two foot deep in water. Uh, and of course, we used to smash our gear up at the end of the shows in those days. Did you really? Yeah, yeah yes, we were. We were. <laughs> you know, it was all part of the act. And oh my god! I'd no idea. And and. Uh, and and uh, along with smashing up the gear, we used to let off these kind of um, army smoke bombs. Yeah, pyrotechnics. <laughs> Let's go with that. Shall they we? weren't. They were, these were serious pyrotechnics. <laughs> they that's what you'd hide a, a fleet of tanks behind. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we, we as we started smashing up the gear, our road manager Bob Pridden uh, set off this smoke bomb behind Beats Amplifier, which lets out this horrible yellowy green, thick smoke. Uh, the drums end up in, in the moat. <laughs> and then the next thing we know, we go, we're surrounded by police fire engines. Uh, and then we're, we're all arrested. Because, <laughs> and we're going, why, what, what have we done? And of course, we didn't realise what, what we, we were green as anything else. You know, uh, it, 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 what, what have we done? They said, we thought there was a fire in a canyon. And of course, if you've got a fire in, in one of those canyons in LA, that's a serious fire. So you can, I can understood totally why they freaked. <laughs> they freaked us out because we thought we were going to go to jail for a year. But, and all that meant you didn't meet the Everly Brothers who were on the same boat? No, because of all that, we didn't meet the Everly Brothers. But um, apparently the, the the crowd in the at the bowl at the time thought the show was great, especially the, especially the pyrotechnics. Can you imagine that now? <laughs> and the blue and red lights. You go to go to prison for the rest of your life. <laughs> Let's talk about Betty, Pete's mum. What was most important? Um, your mate nicking the guitar, not nicking. Yeah, your mate nicking the guitar parts from the guitar factory, or, or Pete's mum Betty being so. Fucking fantastic, it seemed. Pete's mum, Betty Townsend, was she, she was magical. Uh, she was she she was the one. She had faith in us. Um, she obviously, I don't know what it was. She sort of John was quite clearly immediately. You saw John play the bass. Um, he quite clearly had he was he had enormous ability and he was, he was quite clearly. A, a great musician, as was Pete on the guitar. Um, uh, and she just believed in the band. Once we got Keith in the band, or even before Keith, when we were the, 
when we were the detours where she really helped out. She got us a, she used to get us gigs. She got us an agent. Um, she just believed in us. She had faith in us. Um, she'd drive us to gigs <laughs> in a little Ford van. I remember in 1963 we had that terrible winter when, when the road, the roads were like the crest of run. I mean, it really was. We had, we had to do a gig down in Margate. I think it was Margate or Ramsgate, one of those two. And she drove us there in this little little Ford, tiny little van, you know, a little 500 weight van or whatever they were in those days. And we managed to get our gear in. Uh, three of us had to, <laughs> two, only one could sit in the front with Betty and three, the other three had to lay on top of the, the equipment in the back all the way down. And each side of the road, you couldn't see anything other than a wall of ice. It, it really was like the crest of rum. But Betty, fearless Betty, got us down. We did that gig and we got back. She just believed that we would do it. And why was she so into it? Was she into music herself? Or? She was a singer. You know, she was, she was uh, Pete's dad was a saxophonist in the Squadroneers, which was a, an RAF band that later became big on the dance circuit. And she was one of the singers. Um, and she's a real good, good egg. She really was a good egg. Okay, so so Jimi Hendrix, right? Two stories about Jimi Hendrix. Um, one is backstage at Monterey. Is that true? Is 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 it true that Pete and he tossed the coin because yep. of the? That's right. it, that's exactly true. Sorry, can you just tell that story? I know you've told it before, but it's a great well, story. I mean, J Jimmy was absolutely amazing uh, performer. But what people don't realise is a lot of Jimmy's um, showmanship. Not just when he stood at the mic, because that was Jimmy being as good as he is. But when he started doing, digging his guitar into the amps and putting his guitar and the feedback and all that, most of that he copied from Townsend. Townsend was doing that in 19, late 1963. So did Hendrix see him doing that in London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he saw somewhere, somewhere he saw it anyway right. uh, and was copying it. Um, uh, so by the time we got to uh, to Monterey in '67, and obviously Jimmy, we'd done a few shows with him before. Pete was kind of thinking, "Well, that's my whole show, is that?" <laughs> you know, and it's always and it's always a great finale. You know, we didn't really quite have confidence in the music that we had at those times. We had we we were a pop band with these weird singles, this this kind of very obscure music, really, wasn't it? With singles like "I'm a Boy" and. Happy Jack and, and 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 a mini opera. I mean, how pretentious was that? A mini opera called A Quick One While He's Away. <laughs> it was insane what the stuff we were playing. So we thought, well, we're going to get slaughtered if, if, if he goes on before us and does his whole show because that's our show, done. Where's going to be the surprise that we can give an audience that we'll at least make them go, ah, you've got to see the who. Uh, so Pete and Jimmy flipped a coin and Pete won and we chose to go on first. But then, of course, Jimmy came on and blew us all away anyway because if you ever saw Jimmy on the stage, I mean, and unfortunately you never will, but he was... It, to see Jimmy play the guitar and, and move and perform like he did, there's been no one come near since or before. He was extraordinary. Watching him on stage was like watching a mythical animal, mythical beast. It was like the guitar was part, completely part of him. 
um, and just his musicianship. And to their credit, the band, you know, Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding, that, you know, I know they they had their kind of personal difficulties. Jimmy got bored with them. Not so much Mitch, more with Noel. But to their credit, uh, they had the ability to stay with him because Jimmy could be halfway through a song and just flip into another song completely off the wall um, and would often do that. But they would stay with him note for note and, it, and they were good. They were good. You, you, I don't think they really got the credit they deserved. Right. Really but the respect from you guys, of course. Well, yeah, I, I, they, were, they were amazing. I mean, when, I, when, I, when we first saw Jimi Hendrix at, uh, at Blaze's, um, when he did his showcase, we all walked out of there we <laughs> oh dear <laughs> really <laughs> what was it like that night come on tell me it was just incredible I mean it was just like wow were yeah. you working that night or were you just no it was just a night and it was late it was like kind of midnight or 11 o'clock midnight um, we, we we might have been in the studio um, I can't remember well, what. you also let's go for a beer let's watch no we, we used to go to clubs every night right so there was blazes there was bag of nails there was uh, the speakeasy, of course, but this was... Uh, I seem to remember it was Blaze's that we saw his first showcase gig and um, everybody was there. Um, Brian Jones, Eric Clapton, you know, Lee Page. And they all walked out to... I was going to say yeah. Better go, go and practice. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you were carrying, what, how did bloody Clapton and, and Jimmy Page feel about it? Well, you better ask them. I don't know. I mean, but they, it was it was just watching a virtuoso in, 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 in that you something you'd never seen before. You yeah. could do things on a guitar that you'd never seen before. Oh, that chat with Roger, along with the one with Rod at their houses. You know, after being welcomed into their homes by their families and their team, oh, that's so special for me. So so special for me. Worth doing all the podcasts we've done for those two chats alone but all of them all solid gold I wouldn't ask these people to to give me two hours of their life if I wasn't invested you know enough properly appropriately properly and enough in, in what they had to say and what I wanted to ask them I love this I love this podcast my thanks to Marvellous Mira Mira DePala for producing almost every single one of these including our end of year best of specials uh, half of which is the one you're listening to right now Aussie Jane Jane Chizo Cheeseman for producing the ones Mira didn't equally wonderfully Brett Manger Brett Waters for making the whole How To Wild podcast thing happen in the first place and commercial relations thereafter Showbiz John John Dutton for guest booking and guest liaison he remains the best in the business so hands off his arse well I pray every night that that's going to remain the case. And Hittenvora, a.k.a. the Frothy Coffee Man, for general all-round assists as and when required. OK, that's it. Have a lovely everything and continue to have a lovely everything because it really is the only way to live. All right? Ta-da. Sorry. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs>